Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all their things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as any one had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. As Chuck, Chuck said, we're starting a new series, The Marks of a Healthy Church. And uh, I know we have some people here for the first time. Um, I am not the pastor. Our pastor is Bob Corbin. We have four elders. He's one of the elders. And he's on vacation this week. He's up in Pittsburgh. And um, um, so I'm speaking today. But in this series, we're planning on each of the elders teaching at least one of the messages as we work through the marks of a healthy church. Now, I want to say a couple things about our uh, picture that we're using as a theme picture. Um, the stethoscope is what a doctor would use to check out your heart. How's your heart? And he's listening to it. So Bob has that stuck on the, t- the front of the chapel, which is where we come together to worship. I want to make sure, I, uh, I'm only going to say this once, but the building is not the church, okay? That just represents us, where we come together. The church is the people, 
So uh, we are deviating from our norm of teaching through books of the Bible in order to do this series. And as Chuck said, we're trying to do it in a way where we're still going to teach in an expository fashion through various selected passages. And there you see a list of them. Um, and so as we teach through those passages, and when we teach through a book, we go jump, jump around and use cross-references, and we'll be doing that. But we're, we're viewing these passages each Sunday as kind of the, the skeleton, the bones of that week's message and teaching through it. Um, so this is going to carry us through the end of June. Then we'll go back into teaching a book of the Bible on Sunday mornings. As you can see, the first two in Acts, we're going to be looking at what can we learn from the first church, from the church in Jerusalem when it first formed and grew. And then we're going to be looking at what Jesus said about the church, two different messages on that. And uh, then we're going to be in Ephesians 4 for two weeks, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 for two weeks, and then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 on stewardship, and then Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 is where we're going to finish up. Uh, Except for the first one listed, Foundation of a Healthy Church, which is today, these are not at all necessarily the message titles. This is just what we threw up there as the, the, th- the key things that get covered in those passages. And Bob will be teaching all of them except uh, for the ones I'm going to note right now. This week and next week is going to be me. And then Chuck is going to teach on Matthew 18 on May 15th. Steve's going to teach on stewardship on June 19th. And by the way, stewardship is managing the resources God has given you. That's more than just money. Time is a big one and other things, gifts and talents. And then I'm going to finish on June 26th with that last one out of Hebrews. So this is where we're headed. And the reason we're doing it is because we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church. And I hope you want to be part of a healthy church. Okay, now a healthy church, by the way, is not necessarily a perfect church. You're not going to find a perfect church. But a healthy church is one where the Holy Spirit is working in the people and the things we see in the Bible are what's going on in that church. Oh, and so before I leave this, I wanted to just say, by marks of a healthy church, we mean characteristics, the things that represent who and what the people are, and also what the church does. Okay, so that's uh, character stuff and things that the church does. And the other thing that I want to mention is we're basing what we see as a healthy church on what we see in Scripture. We're not going by a lot of the things that you might come up with from a worldly mindset in terms of an organization. We're not trying to bring in external principles and things that make for a healthy organization. Not that we ignore those things, but we're focused on what does Scripture say about bodies of believers. Okay? So, foundation of a healthy church. There's a few verses that probably pop into your mind. I, can, I, I have thought of two, which I'm going to show you. When I talk about a foundation of a healthy, healthy church, this is one that might pop into your minds. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul is writing there, To the church at Corinth, he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That last hymn we sang was the first line of it. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. I want to read the two verses that come before it. So on the screen, I got them out of order. But the uh, 9 and 10 give you context. 
Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, what he's talking about there is the foundation is Christ and the gospel, the word about the good news of Christ, what he has done for us. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And then he comes to dwell in us by sending the Holy Spirit to be in us. And so Paul had come to Corinth and he had laid that foundation. He had preached that message and some had responded and that was the beginnings of the church in Corinth. And then he had left. He had gone other places. A man named Apollos had come along who was mighty in the word. And he had taught and built on that foundation. And there had been teachings for others. And there had been leaders in their own church who had grown up. And this church was struggling with factions. If you read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you find out that they had splits in their church. And they weren't splits along the lines of, I want contemporary music and I like old hymns or something like that or whatever. They were splits in regard to who they were following. Peter, Apollos, Paul, Jesus. And Paul points out, I didn't die for you. Paul didn't die for you. Jesus is the one who died for you. So he's pointing them back to that. And you get this verse when you get to chapter 3. So Jesus Christ is the foundation of... Of the church. Uh, another passage that I think might come to your mind uh, if you've uh, read through the Bible some when you think of the foundation of the church is this one from Ephesians 2. Paul writes there Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now in this analogy comparing the church to a building, the foundation is actually people. The first foundation in 1 Corinthians 3.11 is a person, Jesus Christ. In the second one, Paul is talking about Christ as the chief cornerstone. And then you have the apostles and prophets that came after him that continued to teach. And he's telling this first century church in in Ephesus that that's the foundation for who you are and the faith that you are. But notice that Christ is not only the chief cornerstone, but it's being fit, the whole building, it says, in whom... Christ himself is the cornerstone, but in whom the whole building is being fitted together. In Christ. That's a little hard to get your head around, because when you think of building, you lay the foundation and you're going up from there. But he's saying the whole thing, as you're building it, is in Christ, being fitted together in him, and grows into a holy temple, not for the Lord, but in the Lord. So there's this picture in chapter 2 of Ephesians of it all being starting with Christ and in Christ and for Christ and by Christ. And by by the way, when I had on the list of messages we're spending two weeks in Ephesians 4, 
Um, Bob will be, be teaching both of those. I don't know where he's going to break between the two weeks. But that's all about us being unified in the Spirit and how we all grow together as a body. You may grow some as an individual, but growing to maturity in Christ is something you do with other Christians, not on your own. Okay, so having said all that, the title of my message is really a misnomer because I'm not talking about the foundation of a healthy church. That's Jesus Christ. I've covered that. I could be done. We could all go home. But unfortunately, we're not going to all go home because I'm changing, the, I'm changing my direction here. I'm going to talk about building blocks that you can think of as going on the, that foundation or into that foundation. And uh, I've, I've heard messages, you probably have too, from Acts 2, where starting with, let me get over to Acts 2, where starting uh, uh, in 42... Uh, pastors often teach 42 through 47 about characteristics of a healthy church. I started out there, and I kept pushing myself backwards into the rest of chapter 2, into Peter's message. And uh, I really, we could have just started with chapter 2, verse 1, but I'm going to draw my principles from starting with verse 29, um, and they're going to be building blocks. Now, before I do that, though, we, for the sake of time, we didn't read starting back in verse 1. But I know a number of you know what comes before where Chuck, Chuck started reading. And so I'll get us started on that, but I'm wanting to know what you, some of you remember. In Acts chapter 1, we have the last recorded uh, appearance of Jesus to his followers before he ascends. And the ascension is in chapter 1. He tells them that they're going to be witnesses for him, but to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them with power. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to empower them to be witnesses. And then later in chapter 1, there's 120 of them that are meeting together for prayer. So keep that in mind, 120. As Chuck read it, In chapter 2, there's going to end up being 3,000 that are added to that number that day. So in this one chapter, chapter 2, the church goes from 120 in Jerusalem to 3,120. Mushroom huge growth just in that one day. Um, So who remembers? For those on Zoom, I'll repeat what people say. But tell me, uh, what do you remember? One thing each, so people have, get to take a turn. What, what comes in chapter 2 before the part we read? Okay, so, so Chuck said the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming in tongues of fire. The day of Pentecost was a feast celebration, was a celebration they had 50 days after um, uh, the Passover. Actually, they counted from the Sunday, the first day of the week after the Passover. What happened on the first day of the week after the Passover? Who remembers? Nobody wants to say because you all know. Justin. Christ rose. Yeah, he rose on that Sunday. This is the 50th day after his resurrection, the day of Pentecost. And and so what else? What else? Uh, you mentioned the Holy Spirit. What did the Holy Spirit do? Jose. Okay, so... Jose said they were able to understand each other even though they were from different parts of the world. Let's draw that out. Who were they understanding? The apostles. So 
when you actually, so the apostles, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started speaking in, the phrase we use is tongues. But the Greek word means languages. Well, actually, it can mean tongue. Your very tongue, the, the organ in your mouth. But when you're talking about speaking, you can speak with your tongue. It means that. And then it means languages. And what they were hearing were existing languages of their day. We know that because as Jose was just pointing out, and if you flip back in chapter 2 to verse 6, they say um, that each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. That's what the scripture says. But then it starts quoting them. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it in 7 through 12. The people, the Jews, who are from all over the, the known world of that day, they flocked to where they've heard this noise. Nobody had said that. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, there was this great sound like a wind rushing. And so they flock over to where they heard this noise. And here the followers of Christ are now talking in, in their languages, their native languages they grew up with. And they list a total of 15 different people groups slash locations, places they grew up in. And they're saying uh, uh, that they actually say it somewhere down in here that these are Galileans, but we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born. That's in chapter 2, verse 8. And so a miracle is happening. The Holy Spirit has come on the followers of Christ with power where the miracle is they're speaking languages that they themselves don't know, but others in Jerusalem know. Who, what else do you remember? All right, all right, let me guide this a little bit. Before we get to Peter, because Peter comes up before what we've read, but before we get to Peter and what he does... What else do you remember? What were they hearing being spoken in those languages? The gospel. What did you say, Phyllis? Phyllis said praises to God. Yeah, in um, uh, which verse is it? Um, Verse 11. Yeah, thank you. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Mighty deeds of God. Now, that could be speaking things recorded in the Old Testament. Mighty deeds that God has done. It could also be mighty deeds He had done through Christ, that Christ had done. It could be talking about the resurrection itself, a mighty deed. We don't know. But they're, they're speaking in these languages that they don't know, but the other people know about the mighty deeds of God. Okay, so... I mentioned Peter already. What does Peter do? Okay, so Chuck said they're confused by this. How can this be? We hear them speaking in all these different languages, but they're clearly they're just Galileans. How can this be? They're confused. And some people, skeptics in the midst, say, oh, they're just drunk. They're all just drunk. So then the Bible says that Peter took his stand with the disciples. He stands up and he starts speaking. So last question about what's happened before this. What does Peter say that we didn't read? Who remembers? A prophecy from where? Do you remember? From the book of Joel. He, he spends a bunch of verses. Um, 
basically chapter 14, I mean, verse 14 through 21 is him responding to this charge that they're drunk. And he, about five or six of those verses are him quoting from the prophet Joel, this prophecy about a day would come when the God's spirit would come upon his people. Their sons and daughters would prophesy. And so Peter is quoting Joel and saying, look, this is the fulfillment or at least the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then he transitions. And in verse 22, he starts talking about Christ. And it comes down through there talking about Jesus. And then he quotes from Psalm from David about um, how the Christ was not, his body was not going to undergo decay, hinting clearly at a resurrection. And then we get to verse 29 where Chuck started reading. So that's, that's the context of, of where all this is. So the first thing I want to draw out is a building block. And by the way, I got eight building blocks. It's 1130. I'm planning to be done at noon. Because I got next week. Um, but I'm not going to speak. I'm going to speak a long time on this first one. And then a little bit less on the second one. And then there's several of them I'm not going to say much at all until next week. Okay, so don't worry that there's eight coming. Um, genuine confer- conversion, faith in Christ. This is a key building block. This is important for a healthy church that the people in it are characterized by a genuine conversion. And here's the things I see in this passage. First is a conviction of sin. They were cut to the heart, verse 37 says. Peter has mentioned Christ throughout uh, 22 through through 36. And he has twice said, you crucified Jesus. The last time is in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, whom he's been talking about in those verses, both Lord and Christ. Lord means owner, master, the one who calls the shots. It literally means owner. So if he's your Lord, he owns you. Christ is the Greek word means anointed one. Same as in the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. Who's the anointed one? It's the king. They anointed kings. So he's owner and king. He's Lord and Christ. And then he ends that verse by saying, This Jesus whom you crucified. You can almost picture him pointing his finger. Now these are, these are Jews scattered through the city who are from all those places that were listed earlier in Acts 2. I told you 15 different people groups and locations. And they're living in Jerusalem. The the clear implication here is they've been there a while. They're not just there for Pentecost. They were there when Jesus was crucified. And the bulk of them are probably not the religious leaders who put him on their own trial and then turned him over to Pilate. It doesn't include the Romans, who literally were the ones that carried out the crucifixion. But... The point is that the bulk of the people of Jerusalem apparently were in favor of the crucifixion. And he's telling them, you crucified him. Basically, were accomplices to that crucifixion. Allowed it to happen in your city. Your city crucified him. And so, in verse 37, we see that they're clearly convicted of sin because they were cut to the heart. And they say to Peter... um, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? They're convicted. 
The second thing that, the, that a genuine conversion is characterized, characterized by is repentance of mind. In verse 38, Peter says, repent. That word there is the Greek word, um, uh, metanoia is the noun, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's uh, metanoia, it's a little bit different. But it's the verb form of metanoia, and it means a change of mind. And so Peter is not telling them, go do a bunch of good works to get back in God's favor. He's telling them, you have to change how you think. And the change is clearly to accept that this was the Messiah that you crucified. You had rejected him as Messiah. He had talked in verse 22 about Jesus' miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. He says in verse 22, um, raised from the dead, he says he's clearly the Christ. They have to repent and have a changing of their mind. I was wrong in what I believed. Your actions flow from your beliefs. So therefore, I was wrong in what I did. We crucified him. He was crucified because of us. Different ways you can say that. But a genuine conversion is characterized by conviction of sin, repentance, where you have a changing of your mind. By the way, in, um, in military terms in that day, this was a word uh, for military troops going one way, and metanoia, the verb form that I can't remember how to pronounce but is used here, meant to turn around and go the other way. Changing of your mind where you turn around, go the other way. So the third thing it's characterized by is receiving the word. And you see that in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, the way this is written, um, I am not saying it necessarily progresses in this order. Okay? I do think conviction of sin comes first. Receiving the word overlaps with repentance. Okay? And they could come in a different order. I'm just going by the order. I see these phrases popping up in Peter's uh, message here. Okay, The word that's being talked about is, um, is the gospel, the good news, the word of God as given in Peter's message in verse 22 through 36. He's uh, talked about the miracles and wonders. I mentioned this earlier, verse 23 and 36. He talks about Jesus being crucified. Verse 24, 31 to 33, he talks about Jesus rising from the dead and 31 and 36, that he's Lord in Christ. If you were to compare this to um, 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses where Peter said, I, here's the gospel that was given to me, and he lists things, it's very similar. This doesn't include being buried. But if you go back into Peter's message, he's quoting from David about him being buried. And that his bones were not going to undergo, undergo decay. But so that's even in there too. So this gospel message from Peter is, is the word that they're receiving. Now, the reason I say all this is because in a healthy church, the people of the church need to be genuinely converted. Real followers of Jesus Christ. And in a lot of, well, I don't want to say a lot. In some churches, and it may be a lot, there can be people who have grown up in that church and they have 
taken on various positions in that church. You can even have deacons and elders and pastors where they've somehow grown into that or are doing it, uh, in the case of a minister, uh, for the, to make a living and not actually be genuinely converted, not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I think, for, I think most of the people in here are, are, are followers of Christ, you're believers, but I think if you think back at how you became a Christian, in some fashion, these three things happened in your life. It could have been in a very tight instant, like a hour or so you hear a message or you're reading something, you're convicted and you call out to God for salvation. Or it could have been drawn out over years. But this process has to take place. Conviction of sin where you realize that I have broken God's law. I'm a rebel from Him. No matter what I do trying to please Him, I can't cancel out the fact that I broke that law. And so I need a Savior. That's what comes out of conviction of sin. I need a Savior. But I've got to change how I think. I've got to repent. I've been living for myself. And many of you would testify that at that moment you were also saying, and I've made a general mess of things, trying to live for myself. Now, some testimonies, that might not be part of it. You might have been successful, but you have this aching emptiness in your heart that only God can fill and you've been giving him the stiff hand I'm not going to submit to you but I'm empty okay well either way there's a repenting a changing of mind God is right what I'm hearing in scripture is right what that preacher's saying is right however way it's coming to you and you repent you change your mind and you receive you accept that word of God Okay, I think that most of you in thinking about how you became a follower of Christ, you can see these things in your life. If I'm creating doubt in anyone as to whether you're a believer, talk to me, talk to Bob, pray about it yourself. You need to get it resolved one way or another. Um, But I want to show you another description of this process that uses different words. This is from Paul. What we were reading was Peter's words, as recorded by Luke, in Romans ten thirteen through 16. Now, this is kind of long, but hang in here with this. He says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting an Old Testament passage there. And then he gives us a series of rhetorical questions. They're rhetorical in that the answer to each one is a yes. Of course, it's got to happen that way. Um, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing... By the word of God. Now, he did this, start, Paul did this starting with the fact of whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it goes like that, as you see. Whoever calls is saved. 
How can they call without believing? Well, how can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach without being sent? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We can go backward. We've gone frontwards through this passage. We can go backwards through it now and put together the order of how this works, how God leads a person to salvation. And it looks like this. Someone is sent to preach. Now, I want to pause there. Someone's sent to preach, and preaching leads to hearing. This word for preacher used here in Acts, the Greek word really means herald. Think of a, 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 a king sending out the royal herald. Only royal, because the king's royal, and the herald represents him. But the herald goes out and announces the message from the king. So in that sense, Gerald and I were talking about this Friday. And by the way, herald rhymes with Gerald, if that helps anybody remember it. A preacher is a herald rhyming with Gerald who tells people the king's message. Now, in our society, we have gotten in the Western world where we think of the preacher, synonymous with a minister, as someone who's gotten some special training. And there is good reason for training. But this word is not talking about what you're thinking of as a preacher. It, to be a herald for the king does not require going to seminary, even though seminary can be a good thing. It doesn't require having been a believer for 20 years studying the Bible regularly during all that time. To be a herald for the king means, number one, you have a relationship with the king. Number two, he gives you a message. Now, built into that, maybe it's 2A and B, is that you listen well, so you get the right message. And the B is you repeat it well. But then number three is the herald goes out and he says that message and he tells people. So, this is good news for each of us as believers. We are each able to be a herald for our king if we have heard truth from our God and just pass it on. So... We tend to think of this verse, someone is sent to preach, we need to send them to seminary, train them, we need to get some money together, send them off, maybe they're going to be a missionary. That is good, and that is, fits this passage. But it also fits this passage if you go over to the Good News Club, where we, meet, where we work with kids after school on Monday, and you're part of helping them know the gospel and hear what the Bible says. This fits you if you talk to your neighbor over a cookout that they invited you to or you invited them to or you just run into each other out on the street. David Goray, you're doing grass seed. Some neighbor sees that, comes over, says hi. If you then get into a conversation about Christ and you're telling them what Christ has done in your life and repeating some verses you know that are the foundation for that, you're being a herald. Okay? That's what this means. Every one of us, if you know the Lord... You qualify, all right? Someone is sent to preach. Preaching leads to hearing. Hearing leads to believing. Doesn't that make sense? You can't believe something you've never heard. Hearing leads to believing. Believing, because of that conviction of sin I talked about, leads to calling upon the name of the Lord. I need a Savior. I hear this message. He's the Savior. Please save me from these sins and clean me up, live in my life. I want to be yours. Calling leads to salvation. God sees the heart. 
He knows if you're faking it. People have prayed prayers, walked aisles, gotten baptized, tucked their, quote, fire assurance in their pocket, and then lived for themselves the rest of their lives. That's not what this is talking about. So faith is part of this. It ends with faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is the noun in the Greek, the noun version of the word for belief. They're they're Greek words, but we translate them into English. The verb is belief. The noun is faith. Faith is when we hear and believe what God has said. Okay, so... um, Throw one more verse in there on that, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You'd boast if you could earn it. God had to get me on his team because I was so good. You know, that's not going to happen. No one can boast except boasting of what God has done, changing you. All right, so I want to I finish this. I've got uh, a couple of the key things from the past slides up here. And this is really a note for me, so I don't forget. Um, verse 38 says, Then Peter said to them, They've just said, what shall we do? Peter says to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, This could raise a question in your mind. Is he saying that I have to be baptized in order to get remission of sins or forgiveness? Do I have to be baptized in order to be forgiven? Or we might take that into different words. Do I have to be baptized to be a Christian? Do I have to be baptized to be saved? Now, um, I just want to say first, that's not what it means. I don't think at all that that's what that means. Uh, We have to be careful not to base a doctrine on one verse. But for the sake of time, I can't go into this right now. But we have care group tonight at 6, where we have a meal over there in the house, and then we come over here at 7, and we normally discuss things for the message. Tonight, I'm planning for this to be what we discuss. And there's three lines of thinking applied to this verse that help you understand it. It does not mean... It means you need to be baptized because you've been forgiven of sin. That's my opinion. But tonight I will share my three lines of reasoning about that and we can discuss that. So if, you, if this is a verse where you either have thought you have to be baptized to be a Christian, baptized to be forgiven, or if you don't think that, you don't think that's required, but you're puzzled about this verse, it's a, been tricky, it's a tricky one to handle, come tonight, we're going to discuss it. At 7 o'clock. On, uh, the other one I want to mention is God's calling in verse 39. Um, 39 says, For the promise is for you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now that's a phrase there, all that God will call, that can lead to people getting into the debates about um, predestination versus free will, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say those are valid things to go study, to go dig into. I'm not dismissing that. But that's not what this passage here is about, as Peter is teaching them. Even though he says this one phrase, 
you don't hear him saying to them, out of all of you who are saying, what shall we do? Well, those of you who are called, come over here. We've got some literature for you. We're going to baptize you. You can join our church. All of you that aren't called, there's the exit. You don't see him saying that. All right? We have to be careful to take the full picture of what Scripture says when we're looking at election, calling, predestination. Those are very biblical words. Those are true things about God. He does call. He does elect. But it doesn't, necess- but, but it doesn't necessarily follow that you're doomed to hell because he didn't call which is where some people take that. So you've got to have a balanced approach to this. And I'm just wanting to point out to you, don't get hung up on that phrase and miss what's going on here. In fact, it, I don't have it up here. Well, if you look at 39, look at the progression of verse 39. For the promise is to you, at least 3,000 people that have gathered, but more than that probably because we know some thought they were drunk and they didn't all become Christians. But it's a huge crowd. But it's still only, you know, a few thousand. He says, to you and to your children. Notice he just widened the group. They all got kids. Probably aren't there with them. They're at home. Okay. They all rushed out because they heard this rushing sound. How many of you, you hear a siren, you take your kids, you know, to go, or a big boom, you're going to bring the whole family? No, you run out to go check it out. Um, So he's widened the group. And then the next phrase, he says, and to all who are far off, he's widened it further. And then he says, as many as the Lord our God will call. I don't think that's meant to shrink it. The consistency is he's widening the group with each phrase. A lot of times we think of God's calling and election as shrinking the group. And it could be that is in the big scheme. I don't know, but I don't think that fits with this verse. Okay, so all I'm saying is don't get hung up on that. All right? Now, uh, building block number two, baptism. So in verse 41, in 39, he's spoken of baptism. And again, come tonight to sort out that verse some. In 41, he says, So then those who had received his word which in the way I'm teaching it to you here today, the way I think that it's coming out here, they're saved at that point. They've received his word, all right? They're baptized, and there were added that day to the church's number about 3,000 souls. So what we see here is that baptism is a public step of obedience, all right? Public step of obedience, identifying with Christ, Now, there are three things that can be drawn out about it. The word itself, baptizo, means to dip, dunk, immerse, submerge. Um, If you think of a ship out in uh, the harbor or a bay, if it runs into some rocks and it's stuck on the rocks and it's half sunk and half above, they don't use the word baptizo for that. If it sinks completely underwater, then it's baptizo, okay, submerged. Okay. so that's what the word means, to be immersed. Uh, the second thing is that it comes after faith, not before. It comes after faith, not before. We see them repenting first, accepting his word first. Now, there's a number of other verses that, that I could show you. I, the, the notes handout may have some of them. Um, I'm not going to chase that, but it comes after faith, not before. Oh, so... 
Uh, here's something in this own passage about baptism. Some people are baptized as children or maybe baptized in some other way that's separate from Christian baptism. If we look back, we got two examples here. If you look back in chapter 2, in verse 10, picking up where we're in the list of the different peoples and places that they're, that they're from, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. A proselyte was a Gentile who converted to Judaism. Jews themselves did not get baptized. But when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they baptized them by immersion. Okay? So there would be some in the crowd, from what verse 10 says, some of them are Jews and and some are Jews by being proselytes. Gentiles who become Jews is what I take that to mean. Okay? Now, for the moment, separate in your head because I'm, I, I'm thinking out loud. I don't know what to do with this because the gospel goes to the Gentiles later in Acts when Paul Peter takes it to Cornelius. All right, that's when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But there's proselytes here. Maybe in God's eyes they're not viewed as Gentiles because they have converted to Judaism. That's where I'm going to go with this for right now. But anyway, my point is that a proselyte would have been baptized already. Well, if any proselytes were in their group in verse 41 that believed, they were baptized. Everyone who believed was baptized. So there's a being baptized after you have believed in Christ as the risen Messiah. Uh, There's a second example of that, which I think is in Acts 19. Now, this one can get you off on chasing rabbits too. But in Acts 19, there are a dozen people that Paul encounters in Ephesus who have been baptized in the baptism of John. So I said earlier, Jews would not normally be baptized. Only Gentiles who converted to Judaism would be baptized. There is another way that Jews would have been baptized. If they went out and they heard John's message and they were baptized by John. That would Most Jews wouldn't get baptized, but those would be Jews who were baptized. right? Well, in that passage, Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who was to come after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there they're being baptized again after when they have finally believed in Jesus Christ. Now there's more in that passage, but um, there's two examples, okay? So it comes after faith, not before. Uh, Baptism also symbolizes what has happened spiritually to us in Romans 6 Romans 6 verse 3 Paul says let me get there or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life Baptism by immersion picture symbolizes that very well. The die going into the ground, the dying to the old self, and then rising to new life in Christ to live for Him. Okay, so baptism, public step of obedience, that's a second mark of a healthy church, the people in the church. Uh, and okay, so now I've got about a few minutes left. I'm going to wrap up quickly. Um, In 42, it says, and they were, 
42, and they continued steadfastly in four things, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Continued steadfastly is an important thing. These four things are things they're doing regularly. All right? Your conversion to Christ is a one-time thing. You're convicted, you repent, you accept the word to go to the Romans 10 one that we looked at. You call out to him for salvation. When you are saved, you're saved. Holy Spirit comes into you. The baptism, you only need to do once after you believed in Christ. Okay, But these are things that you do on a continuing, repeated basis. All right. So, number one is God's word. They were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles were teaching them the things that Jesus said. And we know they're also teaching how that connected to the Old Testament because we got Peter's example here quoting from both Joel and Psalms. All right? So I'm making it God's word here, broadening it a little bit. But they're continuing in his word. And this is really important for us if we want to be a healthy church. We have to continue in his word. For us as individuals, we need to continue in his word. Because otherwise we drift, we get off track, okay? So I'm going to show you a few verses. These are all reasons or examples why continuing in the Word of God is important. John 14, 23, and there's more than what I'm going to show you in the notes handout. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14, 23. You can't keep his word if you don't know what he said. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We want to use God's word accurately. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful. It's not just old words on pages that are 2,000 years old. It is old, but it's living. It's powerful. It's relevant for our life. And it can judge sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God helps you discern whether the thoughts and intents of your heart are what God wants or are just coming from you. The kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. If you want to give yourself to something that will last forever, fill your heart with the word of God. Uh, what else we got here? Psalm 1, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but you guys know this verse. The one who, who meditates, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. He meditates day and night. Look at the end of it. Whatever he does shall prosper. Because you're being transformed by God through His Word and giving yourself to the things He cares about. Um, Okay, fellowship I'm going to talk about next week. When I get into Acts 4, most of what I'm focusing on there is about prayer and fellowship. So both of those will be next week. Breaking of bread, I just want to say uh, a quick thing about this. So it says in 42, they were steadfastly continuing in the breaking of bread. 46 says they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Some people teach and take the breaking of bread to mean uh, the Lord's Supper. If that's what you think, it's okay. All right. Um, I personally think that it means eating meals together. But if you think that it's the Lord's Supper, we, we've, we've got sufficient grounds in other verses 
for the Lord's Supper. If you think this is about the Lord's Supper, then I think 46, would you'd have to take that, that they're doing that every day as they go house to house. Uh, I put some... Uh, the passages where breaking of bread or they broke bread, those phrases are in the handout if you want to dig into them. When Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, the phrase he actually uses in 1 Corinthians 11 is the Lord's Supper. He doesn't say, call it breaking of bread at that point. So I'm calling it out separately here because Scripture does in this case. But I really think it's eating meals together, which would fall under fellowship. But it's valuable to call it out separately because a lot of times we think fellowship means just getting together for meals. Fellowship is much more than just getting together for meals. And next week we will be using some of these verses together with chapter 4 and talking about fellowship. Um, number 6 is prayer. I'll be talking about that next week too. It's just briefly mentioned here. There's a great example of the church praying together in chapter 4. So we'll talk about that next week. Praising God. I don't want to leave this one out. 47 says praising God at, at the start of it. They're praising God. We can praise God in many ways. When you pray on your own and you're talk, thanking God or telling Him how great He is, quoting something out of the Scripture about how wonderful God is, about how faithful He is. I was mentioning faithfulness in my, my testimony earlier today. That can be praising God. When you talk with someone else about how great God is, that's praising God. Didn't we see that example with the speaking in other languages? They were praising God, talking about the mighty deeds He had done. Uh, when we sing songs, we praise God. When we worship together, we praise God. When someone's teaching and they talk about how great God is, they're praising God. Praising God is all about how awesome, wonderful, great, God is, and it can be woven through all kinds of things in your life. It's more than just singing a worship song, although that's a great way to praise God. Okay. Um, so before I get to growth, which is the last one, I also want to mention after 47, it says praising God and having favor with all the people. I don't call that out as a building block, and the reason is because people can be fickle. Apparently, from the way the logic of Peter's message, most of these people were in favor of Jesus being crucified back 50 days earlier or 53 days earlier. In Acts chapter 7, 8, 9, the church, this same church is going to begin to be persecuted severely by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So people can be fickle, but Scripture does mention it, and it's worth pointing out that the church is not always persecuted. The church is persecuted, and our First Peter 4 that we've been talking about in Sunday school for weeks now is preparing us to handle suffering right. It's teaching us about how to suffer for the name of Christ. But there are periods, there are times where the church is well respected by the outsiders, by the non-believers. And I, I gave you a couple verses in the notes handout sheet if you want to uh, track that down. And by the way, we were talking about elders today in Sunday school from 1 Peter 5. In the list of things about elders uh, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications, one of them, I think it's in 1 Timothy 3, is about being respected by outsiders. So there you have an example. We could chase that on what it means. But 
it's an example of choosing a leader in your church who is thought well of by those non-believers that are in his life. Okay? So, but it's not a building block, in, uh, in my opinion, because people are fickle. All right, last one is growth. There are two types of growth, numerical. They added 3,000 this day. In chapter 5, you're going to see where the number of men in their group reached 5,000, which means they're well over 5,000 because they've got women in the group, in the group too. Um, growth can also be spiritual, growing in Christ's likeness. For us as, this, as leaders in this church, growth is something that God causes. We can foster it by being in line with Him living the way he wants us to live, being witnesses for him. But we can't cause growth. We just foster it, and he works in people. He's the one that brings the conviction of sin and the repentance and the accepting of his word. And so growth can be numerical, but it also can be you growing and the people in the church growing in Christ's likeness. And then growth also happens corporately and individually. I give you some verses here. Um, I don't think I'm going to go into all that for the sake of time. Um, But it both happens in you as you are pursuing your relationship with God and growing in obedience to Him, becoming more like Christ. Romans 8, 28, verse 29. 29 says God's purpose is to conform you to the image of Christ. You, individually, conform you to the image of Christ. But Ephesians 4 is all about how we grow up together as God works through each of us to benefit each of us. So, growth happens both ways. And so here's where I want to end with a few questions. Have you truly been born again? Have you had a genuine conversion? If you haven't, this is something that you need to get right. You need to get it right with the Lord. Hopefully, every, hopefully you can say yes I remember how I became a believer. I know the verses that that belief is based on. But this is, this is the starting point. Christ is the foundation of the church. Christ needs to be the foundation in your life. Secondly, are you continuing steadfastly in the things that contribute to a healthy church? Um, those things like the Word, fellowship, Prayer, we haven't talk, talking about those next week, but you know what fellowship, you know a lot about what fellowship and prayer are. Are you continuing in the things that enhance your own spiritual growth so that you can be someone who, as Paul talks about in the beginning of Ephesians 4, who is uh, pursuing the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? How is your spiritual growth going? Think about that in terms of your own assessment of where you are with God. Um, We all get stuck from time to time. There are several ways we get stuck. We can get stuck in sin, and we're not growing anymore because we're staying in a repeated sin. And we need to forsake that sin. We need God to help us do that. You can't do that on your own. You've got to continue to live by faith just as you started your relationship with Christ. But you've got to get out of that sin one way or another, and then you start growing again. We can be stuck in a dryness where we're still doing the things that we think of as spiritual devotions, but we're just not hearing from God. Intimacy has gone. And there may be, maybe you just need to endure for a time, and then it gets rich again. 
God may be testing you during that. But it may be there's something else going on and you need some help, some encouragement from another believer to help you get out of that jam. But we experience this. Another thing is, is feeling like you're just kind of coasting. You're not getting new stuff from God. This may overlap with what I was just talking about. But if you if you sometime in your in your life in your spiritual life feel like you're coasting on the things you already know about God, coasting usually means you're going downhill. Coasting rarely means you're going up. Okay, think of riding a bicycle. So, how's it going? You know, your brothers and sisters in Christ can be great encouragers for you. You have somebody that you share what you're struggling with. Everybody has, you're, you're, whatever you struggle with, there's some other people that have struggled with the same thing. And God has comforted them, given them victory, carried them through it. They might be helpful for you. If you, find your, if you think right now while you're looking at this slide, I'm not growing very much, okay? Now, some of you are looking at this and I hope are saying, things have been really good the last month or this year. God is working in my life. Do you want a healthy church? I hope you want a healthy church. If you want a healthy church, come with us. Healthy believers lead a church to be healthy. And a healthy church helps individuals to become healthy believers. They go together. We should be in this together. So come with us as we do these nine weeks. Nine more weeks. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? Let me close this in a prayer and we'll be done. Father, I thank you for um, this passage in Acts 2. There is so much more in it than I covered. I, I, Lord, I, I just ask that you would work in each person's heart and meet them where they are. Whether it was something that I said or something they just read on their own in Acts 2 or heard Chuck read earlier that lodged in their minds. I just pray, Father that you would work with power in each person's life here, that they would come away locked on to some truth from you and excited about it. If there's anyone here who's struggling in their walk with you, um, give them some hope. Give them uh, reason to hold steadfast and to keep plugging away and to cling to you. You are the God who is faithful. And Father, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, I ask, Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit working in their mind and heart, would help them to understand the truth of the gospel, help them to become convicted of their sin, and to want to repent from it and to call out to you for salvation. Lord, I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.